I'm Holiday. I'm Taraday. I'm Independence Day. Oh, a microphony. And a phony at the mic. Get Whoa! Ah. <laughs> and now, on with the opera. Let joy be unconfined. Let there be dancing in the streets, drinking in the saloons, and necking in the parlor. Play, Don. Would you welcome Mr. Warm? Picture it. <laughs> Sicily, 1912. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to a thrilling and exciting episode of Killers, Cults, and Nutjobs 2.0. I am, as always, your host, the Great White Snark, the man on a mission, Scotty J., and seated across from me is the lovely and twisted Monica. Hi! Oh, <laughs> uh, you should have heard the conversation we were having before we turned on the mics. I asked her if she was ready, and she was like, I guess. This like is again of... pulled out of somewhere. <laughs> right, I said you sounded like one of those kids from those, like, 1980s after-school commercials, you know? Did your mom have something to drink? I guess. <laughs> oh, Sunny D. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like Sunny D made that. great <laughs> Like Sunny D made everything good, you know. Uh-huh. What happened, Timmy? I broke my arm. I can't <laughs> move it. Would you like some Sunny D? Hey, yeah, sure. Uh-huh. Or the Kool-Aid band busting through the wall, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, those commercials were cheesy, but they were fun. Yeah, yeah. I did show Alex one of my favorite Easter commercials from when I was a kid in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Late 70s, early 80s, every year. Some of the older ones might remember this one. It used to be an M&M commercial every Easter. Kids in their Easter best and, you know, their baskets. And they'd go reach into their basket and grab, like, plain or peanut because those were the only two types of M&M's you had back then. There wasn't no caramel, there wasn't no almond, there wasn't no crispy. And they had the fudge brownie ones, though. Oh, I'm afraid to touch those because I'm allergic to chocolate. It's worth it. <laughs> you know, it's worth me getting yeah. sick for a week? Okay. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we have, have a couple of them, do, you know. Yeah. Oh, but, uh, you just tried a couple. <laughs> so, so uh, the kids would reach into their, you know, reach into the Easter basket. They pull out the um, the bag and they go, "Thank you, Easter Bunny." Well, the best part of the commercial was two brothers at the end of the commercial. One was dressed as a chick, and the other was dressed as the egg he hatched from. <laughs> and the one in the egg had the best line. And goes, "Thank you, Bunny." <laughs> His brother go, bah, bah. <laughs> "I don't remember those ones." Oh my god. That played every Easter. And you had to sit there and wait to the end because this, this kid just had like the, the blankets of expression on his face. He's like, Thank East Bunny. <laughs> his brother, you know, flapping his arms <laughs> going cluck cluck. <laughs> I showed it to Alex one day. He looked and he goes, Your commercials were strange, Dad. I'm like, Yeah, they were. The, yeah, they were awesome. Yeah. And I was a kid, and you, you almost felt like this was a drug trip every Easter. Mm-hmm. Or how many of the animals are dead now from the... Oh, God, yeah. It's like every single one of them. You know, everyone got you know gave their kid a bunny or a little chick. Mm-hmm. You know, 
where you had to get young. And those things were dead, or if the chickens grew up, they became dinner within a year. And what I hated was like the parents who died, the the white bunnies, like uh, died, yeah. like them, like blue or yellow or pink. Mm-hmm. Like, don't disgrace that damn rabbit. Yeah, it's bad enough it's going to be dead within a month because your kid's going to lose interest in it, and then you're going to end up taking care of this rabbit. But no, no, don't don't do that to that bunny. Don't unless you know. I always well. I had a neighbor across the street that had rabbits, so he was an older gentleman. But they were some nice rabbits. I always wanted a gray rabbit because I knew what I was going to name him. Boy, Bugs Bunny. (laughs) The uh, my my teacher in sarcasm. Well, when I was in middle school, I wanted to get a newt. Now that's not bad. Yeah, but then I was going, but yeah, I was going to name him um, Gingrich. So yeah, nice. You know, this is my new Gingrich. I just read an essay about him the other night. Well, he was part of an essay that I okay, read. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like. Then, that's that's a- that's a clever name, though. Well, yeah, right? Be like, yeah, this is my mute, Gingrich. <laughs> that, that is a clever name. That, that was good. I was 12. So, you know, hey. hurry, whack it. Hey, you know, props for a 12-year-old coming up with such a play on words. Uh-huh. I'm going to have to tell you uh, when we turn the mics off later what Alex said this past weekend. We, we found a copy of... Um, of Moss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, the telling of the Holocaust, but they're using mice instead of people. Uh, uh-huh. And he did such a play on words that it it amazed me still to this, you know, mm-hmm. almost a week later that he, he said that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, sometimes my son can come up with a good one, but, you know. Well, my daughter and I, when we were talking about our sarcasm one day, it's like, we're blunt with it. Mm-hmm. Alex is like a sniper. Mm-hmm. When he fires one, you just go, damn. Oh, yeah. We need some laughs for this one. For this one. Yeah, right. We need some laughs for this one because yeah. we are we're touching one that I've won. I mean, I knew we were going to do it because it, it, it's kind of like a filler because I'm, I'm getting, I'm going to look in into some new ones. Um, I've got some books coming in on uh, Natalie Wood, which is one I've always wanted to cover. And don't blame me for this one. Well, and the thing is, is with, with Natalie Wood, I mean, we're not going to cover her her film career. Well, yeah, because I mean, we may like a short, like paragraph. Yeah, you know, like, I mean, we you know we might say, okay, while she was filming this movie, this was going on at home. Yeah, because also explains how she ended up on the bill. You can't just say it like kids. Yeah, right. But she had enough money to, like, yada, yada, yada. Right. So, I mean, we're going to look into her life. I mean, and I mean, she's, her first movie was what? Miracle on 34th Street? Yeah. You know, the, the little girl who didn't believe that Santa Claus was real? Mm-hmm. Well, you, you guys know the movie. It's, it's a great. Funny. 
It's a great Hollywood or Hollywood holiday movie. It's been remade two or three times, mm-hmm. but the the story we're doing today it's a, it's a two parter, and this is one that I kind of want to wanted to put in like a filler week, filler a couple weeks, you know, in between, you know, me wrapping up class here and getting like really getting started into um. You know, researching a bunch so that we're kind of, well, my next semester is reading so I can do, theoretically, I could do both, but let's, let's not talk about that bridge yet. But this is a, this is a pretty gruesome case. And, and this one turns my stomach, which is impossible since I grew up on 1980s horror. Well, yeah, like I said, that, um, is that a Hershey pen? Yes, it is a Hershey pen. I thought so. Yeah, and it smells like chocolate. It's awesome. Oh. Uh huh. So, oh yeah. Yeah. So you won't be allergic to this, then, right? Um. Actually, when we the first time we well the only time I've been there to mm-hmm. to your son's happy place. Mm-hmm. Um. The smell of the chocolate in the air got to me. Oh uh, yeah, but that's like real chocolate. This is like. Pen chocolate. Okay. Definitely. So my, my son, I give credit to him. He stayed by my side in case I needed to lean on him. I don't know what I did to get those two kids, but. Yeah. Really still don't know. <laughs> I'm going to have to go to a psychic. <laughs> what did I do in a past life to get my kids? <laughs> but we're talking about Sylvia Likens today, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. And this is a this is a messed up one. Sylvia Marie Likens was the third born on January third, nineteen forty nine. She was the third of five children born to a carny to carny workers, Lester Cecil Likens and his wife Elizabeth Betty Francis. Now I know that it says they were carnival workers, but I really want to know what the hell they did. I want to know if he put up rides, you know, like he was the the, the three fingered man running the tilt the world. I forget because I had read the book like I mean several years ago. But... Oh, House of Evil. Yeah, one of them. Like I just, I just want to know what they did. Yeah, I don't think they weren't like the freak show, obviously. Oh, God, that would have made more sense. Yeah, but they weren't, so. No, but I mean, did, did he set up rides? Did he run a game? Mm-hmm. You know, did, did she run a food stand? Snake charmer, you know, something. I can't remember what it said they did. If... Now, she was born between two sets of fraternal twins. There was Dan, Daniel and Diana, who were two years older than her. Oh, I like this one. Benny and Jenny. I wonder if they nicknamed her June. I was waiting for you to see. I was waiting to see if you caught that one. I was saying, yeah, it was House of Evil. I had read, so. It came yeah, I was, waiting for, I was waiting to see if you caught my movie reference there. Mm-hmm. That was a good movie, though. Awesome. Even better sword. Okay. Yeah. So Benny and Junior, sorry, Benny and Jenny were one year younger. Now Jenny suffered from polio, 
And Ben, Jenny suffered from polio, causing one of her legs to be weaker than the other. She was afflicted with a notable limp and had to wear a steel brace on one leg. Now, uh, this was probably before the sock vaccine became available to everybody. As I, I want to say the sock vaccine didn't come out until the 50s. Too late to save a DR, folks. Well, Western Elizabeth's marriage was unstable. Or unstable. Unstable. I can't talk tonight. <laughs> they often sold candy, beer, and soda at carnival stands around Indiana throughout the summer. They're, well, there's your answer. Yeah, there's my answer. I, I still would have preferred if he, <laughs> they, if he it was like the the guy with three fingers on his left hand putting together the tilt-a-whirl, you know. Yeah, not interesting. Not as interesting. Uh, not, not, as, not as much as O'Carney, you know. So they were moving frequently and regularly experiencing severe financial difficulties because carny work is seasonal work, you know? Oh, no, well, I knew that, seasonal. <laughs> you, you're starting probably about late April, early May, going until late September, maybe early October, depending on uh, Midwestern's weather. You're in town for a week at a time. Mm-hmm. Moving on. Makes me wonder if carnies have groupies. You never know. There's some strange women out there. And men. Now, the Likens' sons regularly traveled with them in order to assist with their job, but Sylvia and Jenny were discouraged from doing the same out of concern for their safety and education. Okay, I see that. Had the boys come along so they can learn a trade, but you girls, nah, man, just carny work is too dangerous. I get it. As a result, both sisters frequently stayed with their relatives, often grandma. Now in our teen years, Sylvia occasionally earned spending money by babysitting, running errands, or performing ironing chores for friends and neighbors, often giving her mother part of her earnings. She has been described as a friendly, confident, and lively girl with long, wavy, light brown hair extending below her shoulders and was known as Cookie to her friends. Now, if you see a picture of this, this girl is, you know, nice looking for a teenager. But, I mean, this, you look at this girl, and this girl has so much potential. Makes me upset because I'm a, I mean, I have a daughter. And I'll protect that girl no matter what happens. Uh, although exuberant, she liked to keep her mouth closed when smiling due to a missing front tooth. Hey, we have something in common. You're related. Oh, man. I've seen her pictures. I would have... Knowing me, if I was in her school back then, I probably would have tried to date her. I know me. Which she had lost while roughhousing with one of her brothers during a childhood game. Oh, that'll happen. She was also found of music, particularly the Beatles. Yep, okay. Okay, I'm, I'm seeing a potential love connection here. And was notably protective of her markedly more timid and insecure younger sister. On several occasions, the two sisters would visit a local skating rink where Sylvia would help Jenny by holding her hand 
while Jenny skated on her unaffected foot. Oh, that'd be so cool. Gertrude Nadine Banaszewski was born in Indianapolis, Indiana to Hugh Marcus Van Fossen Sr. and Molly Myrtle, both of whom were originally from Illinois and were of American and Dutch descent. Oh, that's and nice. I know. She was the third of six children, and her family was working class. On October 5th, 1939, she saw her 50-year-old father die from a sudden heart attack. Ooh. Yeah, that's pretty young for... Oh, yeah. I mean... Like, yeah. he's making it, like, real helper. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't make... doesn't help me out. I'm 50, and I, my family's got heart prob heart disease and shit. Oops. It means I'm going to have to, like, take over the show then, too. <laughs> yeah, you'll have to write the scripts. And if you're at home, like, that, well, that's not so much a problem as the, you know, all the editing and the stuff. Like, yeah, self-taught audio engineer here. Yeah, so, so. Six years later, she dropped out of high school at the age of 16 to marry 18-year-old John Stephen... Banishevsky, which, so actually, her main name was Van Fossens. Right, but I mean, well, I'll six. I didn't see that before, so I just didn't, you know. Right, but I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, she was 16, he was 18, yeah, one parent's allowed to sign away her daughter's life, yeah. Well, there was only one parent, too, though, it's out. Right, you know, you only need one parent to sign the paper. Uh-huh. He was originally from Youngsville, Pennsylvania, and was of Polish ancestry, and with whom she had four children. Although John Banaszewski had a volatile temper and occasionally beat his wife, the two would remain together for ten years prior to their first divorce. Oh, you gotta love that. Uh-huh. Actually, I have an aunt who married her, her husband, married and divorced her husband twice. Following her divorce, Banaszewski married a man named Edward Guthrie. This marriage lasted just three months before the couple divorced. Shortly thereafter, Banaszewski remarried her first husband, with whom she had two more children. The couple divorced for the second time in 1963. Weeks after her third divorce, Banaszewski began a relationship with a 20-year-old welder named Dennis Lee Wright, who also physically abused her. Gotta be, gotta be something about the welders, man. Mm -hmm. She had one child with Wright, Dennis Lee Wright Jr., and shortly after the birth of their son in May 1964, Wright abandoned Yep, Yep, sounds like a welder. Shortly thereafter, Banaszewski filed a paternity suit against Wright for financial support of their child, although Wright seldom contributed to the care of their son. Yeah, that's a boat. That's a welder. By 1965, Banaszewski lived alone with her seven children, Paula, 17, Stephanie, 15, John, 12, Marie, 11, Shirley, 10, James, 8, and Dennis Lee Wright, Jr., 1. Although 36 years old and 5 feet 6 inches in height, she weighed only 100 pounds. God damn. That's... It, not enough. And has no. been described as a haggard, underweight asthmatic. 
gene therapy, <laughs> suffering from clinical depression due to the stress of three failed marriages, a failed relationship, and a recent miscarriage. In addition to the sporadic checks she received from her first husband, a former Indianapolis policeman, upon which she primarily relied financially to support her children, Banishevsky occasionally performed odd jobs for neighbors and acquaintances, such as sewing or cleaning in order to earn money. Banishevsky resided in Indianapolis at 3850 East New York Street, where the monthly rent was $55. Yeah, I wish it was that way now. Oh, yeah. By June 1965, Sylvia and Jenny Likens resided with their parents in Indianapolis. On July 3rd, their mother was arrested and subsequently jailed for shoplifting. Shortly thereafter, Lester Likens arranged for his daughters to board with Gertrude Banishevsky, the mother of two girls with whom the sisters had recently become acquainted while studying at Arsenal Technical High School, Paula and Stephanie Banishevsky. At the time of this boarding agreement, Gertrude assured Lester she would care for his daughters until his return as if they were her own children. Well, she got seven of them. She ought to know how to take yeah, care right? of Yeah, right? Get mixed in. Like, well, which, one, like, which one's mine? Which one's not? Right. Ring a bell. Ding, 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 ding. Tommy! Uh-huh. Put the food off. Put the food in a trough and just let them go. Shortly after the July 4th holiday, the sisters moved into 3850 East New York Street in order for their father and later their mother to travel to the East Coast with the carnival, with the understanding that Gertrude would receive weekly boarding fees of 20 bucks to care for the daughters until they returned to collect Sylvia and Jenny in November of that year. And must be big time with the carnivals hitting the East Coast. Now, during the initial weeks in which Sylvia and Jenny resided with Gertrude, the sisters were subjected to very little discipline or abuse. Likens regularly sang along to pop records with Stephanie, and she willingly participated in housework at the Gertrude residence, because I'm not attempting that name because I get yelled at because I butchered Bobby B's name. It was said a little bit more in documentaries. Yes, I know, oh, but you know, yeah. And I, I thought, and I, and I thought I had it right, but apparently I didn't. Yeah. Both girls also regularly attended Sunday school with the Gertrude clan, with the pastor com commending Sylvia's piety. She could have been a nun. Although Lester had agreed to pay Gertrude twenty bucks a week in exchange for the care of his daughters. After approximately two weeks, these payments failed to consistently arrive upon the pre-arranged dates, occasionally arriving one or two days late. In response, Gertrude began venting her frustration at this fact upon the girls by beating their bare buttocks with various instruments, such as a one-quarter inch thick paddle, making statements such as, Well, I took care of you two little bitches for a week for nothing! Oh, man, how is my grandma coming through? On one occasion, in late August, both girls were beaten approximately 15 times on the back with the aforementioned paddle after Paul had accused the sisters of eating too much food at a church supper the household children had attended. By mid-August, 
Gertrude had begun to focus her abuse almost exclusively upon Sylvia, with her primary motivation likely being jealousy of the girl's youth, appearance, respectability, and potential. According to subsequent trial testimony, this abuse was initially inflicted upon Sylvia after she and Jenny had returned to the Gertrude house from Arsenal Technical High School, as well as on weekends. The initial abuse included subjecting Sylvia to beatings and starvation, forcing her to eat leftovers or spoiled food out of the garbage cans. On one occasion, she was accused of stealing candy she had actually bought. On another occasion, in late August, Sylvia was subjected to humiliation when she claimed to have a boyfriend in Long Beach, whom she had met in the spring of 65 when her family lived in California. In response, Gertrude asked Sylvia if she'd ever, you ever done anything with the boy? To which Likens, unsure of her meaning, replied, oh, I guess so, and explained that she had gone skating with boys there and had once gone to a park on the beach with them. Continuing the conversation with Jenny and Stephanie, Sylvia mentioned that she had once laid under the covers with her boyfriend. Upon hearing this, Gertrude asked, Why'd you do that, Sylvia? Which, Sylvia replied, I don't know, and shrugged. Several days later, Gertrude returned to the subject with Sylvia, telling her, You're surely getting big in the stomach, Sylvia. Looks like you're going to have a baby. Now, Sylvia thought Gertrude was kidding with her and said, Yeah, sure, getting big. I'm just going to have it, have to go on a diet. Gertrude then informed her and the other girls in the house that whenever they did something with a boy, they would be sure to have a baby. She then kicked lichens in the genitals. Ow! Paula, herself three months pregnant and also jealous of lichens' physical appearance, then participated in attacking lichens knocking her off her chair and onto the kitchen floor, shouting, You ain't fit to sit in a chair! What the holy... <laughs> On another occasion, as the family ate supper, Gertrude, Paula, and a neighborhood boy named Randy Gordon Lepper force-fed lichens a hot dog overloaded with condiments, including mustard, ketchup, and spices. Lichens vomited as a result and was later forced to consume what she had regarded. Oh, Jesus! Yeah. Like... In what was Lichen's only act of retaliation, she is alleged to have spread a rumor at Arsenal Technical High School that Stephanie and Paula Banaszewski were prostitutes because she was upset with the household singling her out for similar accusations. While at school, Stephanie was jokingly propositioned by a boy who told her that Lichen's had started this rumor about her. Upon returning home that day, Stephanie questioned Likens about the rumor, and she admitted to starting it. Stephanie punched her in response, but Likens apologized to her in tears, and Stephanie then also began to cry. However, when Stephanie's boyfriend, 15-year-old Coy Randolph Hubbard, heard of the rumor, he brutally attacked Likens, slapping her, banging her head against the wall, and flipping her backwards onto the floor. When Gertrude found out, she used a paddle to beat Likens. Like this poor girl hasn't been through enough with this incident. Mm-hmm. On another occasion, Paula beat Likens about the face with such force that she broke her own wrist, having primarily focused her blows upon Likens' teeth and eyes. 
Later, Paula used a cast on her wrist to further beat Blakens. Oh, those were those old plaster ones. Yeah. Gertrude repeatedly falsely accused Blakens of promiscuity and of engaging in prostitution, ranting about the filthiness of prostitution and women in general. Gertrude would later occasionally force Jenny to strike her own sister, beating Jenny if she did not comply. Now, still a human being here, Coy Hubbard, and several of his classmates frequently visited the Gertrude residence to both physically and verbally torment Sylvia, often collaborating with Gertrude's children and Gertrude herself. With Gertrude's active encouragement, these neighborhood children routinely beat Sylvia, sometimes using her as a practice dummy in violent judo sessions, lacerating her body, burning her skin with lit cigarettes in excess of 100 times, and severely injuring her genitals. Fucking savages, man. To entertain Gertrude and her teenage accomplices, Sylvia was forced at one point to strip naked in the family living room and masturbate with a glass Pepsi-Cola bottle in their presence, with Gertrude stating to all present that this act of humiliation was for Sylvia to prove to Jenny what kind of a girl you are. Man. If I had gone back in time, I'd have kicked in the door and kicked in Gertrude and all them kids. Gertrude eventually forbade Sylvia from attending school after she confessed to having stolen a gym suit from the school due to Gertrude having refused to purchase the clothing for her. For this act of theft, Gertrude whipped Sylvia with a three-inch wide police belt. Ooh. Gertrude then switched her conversation to the evils of premarital sex before repeatedly kicking Sylvia in the genitals as Stephanie rallied to her defense shouting, She didn't do anything. Gertrude then burned Sylvia's fingertips with matches before further whipping her. A few days later, Gertrude repeatedly whipped Jenny with the police belt after she reportedly stole a single tennis shoe from the school to wear on her strong foot. Now, the siblings were fearful of notifying either family members or adults at their school of the increasing incidents of abuse and neglect they were enduring, as both were afraid that doing so would only worsen the situation, which... I mean, kids in that situation do that. They don't speak out for fear of reprisals against the, from the abuser. Jenny, in particular, struggled against the urge to notify family members as she had been threatened by Gertrude that she would herself be abused and tortured to the same degree as her sister if she did so. Jenny was also subjected to bullying by girls in her neighborhood in addition to occasionally being ridiculed or beaten whenever she alluded to Sylvia's situation. In July and August, both Lester and Elizabeth Likens would occasionally return to Indianapolis to visit their daughters whenever their, tra whenever their travel schedule afforded them the opportunity. The last occasion Lester and Elizabeth visited their daughters was on October 5th. On this occasion, neither girl exhibited any visible signs of distress about their mistreatment to their parents. This was likely because both were in the presence of Gertrude and her children. Almost immediately after Lester and Elizabeth had left the Banaszewski household on their final visit, 
Gertrude turned her face lichens and stated, What are you going to do now, Sylvia? Now that we're gone. On one occasion in September, the girls encountered their older sister, Diana Shoemaker, at a local park. Both Jenny and Sylvia informed Diana about the abuse they were enduring at the hands of their caregiver, adding that Sylvia was being specifically targeted for physical abuse and almost always for things she had neither said nor done. Neither sister mentioned the actual address where they resided, and initially, Diana believed her sisters must have been exaggerating their claims regarding the scope of their mistreatment. Several weeks prior to this, Sylvia and Jenny had encountered Diana in the same park while in the company of 11-year-old Marie Banaszewski, and Sylvia had been given a sandwich to eat when she mentioned to her sister that she was hungry. Likens remained silent about the matter, although Marie revealed this fact to her family in late September. In response, Gertrude accused Likens of engaging in gluttony before she and Paula choked and bludgeoned her. The pair then subjected Likens to a scalding bath in order to cleanse her of sin, with Gertrude grabbing Likens' hair and repeatedly banging her head against the bath to revive her whenever she fainted. God damn. This poor girl. Now, shortly after this incident, the father of a neighborhood boy named Michael John Monroe phoned Arsenal Technical High School to anonymously, anonymously report that a girl with open sores across her entire body, was living at the Gertrude household. As Sylvia had not attended school for several days, a school nurse visited East New York Street to investigate these claims. Gertrude claimed to the nurse that Sylvia had run away from her home the previous week and that she was unaware of her actual whereabouts, adding that Sylvia was out of control and that her open sores were a result of her refusal to maintain decent personal hygiene. Gertrude further claimed that Likens was a bad influence on both her own children and her sister. The school made no further investigation concerning Sylvia's welfare. You idiots! The immediate neighbors of the Gertrude family were, were a middle-aged couple named Raymond and Phyllis Vermillion. Both initially viewed Gertrude as an ideal caregiver for the for the Lycan sisters, and both had visited Gertrude's residence on two occasions while the girl had been under her care. On both occasions, however, the Vermillions witnessed Paula physically abusing Sylvia, who on both occasions had a black eye, and openly boasting about her mistreatment of the child to them. Upon their second visit to Gertrude's house, both observed Sylvia to appear extremely meek and somewhat zombified in nature. Nevertheless, the Vermillions never reported the evident mistreatment to the authorities. Oh, Jesus. It's the Midwest for you, folks. Oh, we'll see. Unless, if this was a dog, you know the cops would have been called in a heartbeat. Even back then, they would like, yeah. Um, this was before my time, I have to say. right? But I mean, the first one before before your time, too, so. right? But if this had been a dog, you know, the police would have been over there in a heartbeat, yeah. Now, all or about October 1st, Diana Shoemaker discovered that her sisters were at Gertrude's residence. She visited the property in an attempt to in initiate regular contact. 
Gertrude, however, refused to allow Diana entry to the property, stating that she had received permission from their parents not to allow either of the girls to see her. She then ordered Diane to leave the property. Approximately two weeks later, Diana encountered Jenny by chance close to the home and inquired as to Sylvia's welfare. She was informed, I can't tell you or I'll get into trouble. And this is where we're going to leave it for this week, folks. Well, I hope that uh, helps you sleep at night. Yeah. Have a restful night, everybody. All right. You know, hey, thanks. Good night. You know, enjoy the meal. Mm-hmm. But um, we're going to pick this up next week. Um, so if you're looking for us out there, you know, Spotify, Podbean, CastBox, Facebook page, join us there because we have such wonderful conversations when we actually have conversations. <laughs> we actually have conversations. But it's a nice community. We're good. We're good people. Let you know when it's the stuff's posted. Right. And and I I'm I'm just gonna say this now at the end of the show. Uh the past couple of weeks I've been under I just realized this talking to people at school, but I may have a little bit of a depressive episode for the past couple of weeks, so I'm working through it. Um I'm hope hopefully I'm going to get on a um a better schedule for releasing the shows. I'm thinking about just going back to the old Thursday release dates. That way I can release them before we record. That makes sense. Yeah. It, I don't know why I didn't do that before but and for those of you who may be curious to know, my father is in the area, so yeah, I've been I've been in a bomb shelter too for a couple of weeks, so looking behind you. Well, my aunt, um, come to think of it, my aunt said she ran into him at our local Goodwill store. Mm-hmm. And I she sent me the picture and one of my cousins said he looked like, because of how his hat was sitting on his head, so he looked like a, um, what did he say? Oh, he said he looked like a leprechaun. I said he looks more like a hillbilly. Oh. But she she did a good enough job and snapped a picture of the vehicle he's driving so we could keep a, an eye out for it on the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I asked why she didn't gun the engine and run him down. Well, yeah. She says she didn't want to go to jail. And I said, yeah, he just told the cops she thought it was a stray dog. Then you backed over, ran over, backed over, ran yeah. over, backed over, ran <laughs> My mom looked at me and she goes, you think that's a little too much? I'm like, no. Uh. <laughs> mom, I grew up watching vampire movies. I know how to take out a vampire. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> I'll keep everybody updated. I haven't seen them. I, I've been working home, so I've been lucky. Because if I would have seen them. <laughs> Back up to check where it was. Oh, don't say anything. Uh, if it was my brother Jeremy, all he'd have to do is, you know, he's got a license to carry. 
Jeremy's already said he's showing up on the doorstep. He's he's getting shot. It's like pull him in first, then shoot him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do I have to teach you everything? Yeah. <laughs> I have a killer's cousin, Nutjobs 2.0. I'm Scotty J. Say goodnight, Monica. Goodnight, Monica. <laughs>